And I feel like it's a, a timely thing for us because it's a struggle. I have recently learned in my own marriage as our family dynamic has changed dramatically with two new kids who don't know the way we do things that we have undergone probably the most intense period of stress that we've ever undergone as a family. And it has tested our marriage. It's tested the way that we treat our children. And so this is very timely for me. So if nothing else, for the next few weeks, I'll be preaching to myself. But I know you, and I know people, because I know where I spend a lot of my time in discipleship and counseling. And the truth of the matter is, marriage is difficult. I, uh, I read an article, it's probably been a couple of months ago, that said that we should stop saying marriage is hard. It was interesting because the girl who wrote it admitted that she'd only been married like 12 months. But she said, marriage isn't really hard, marriage is a blessing. That doesn't mean that marriage isn't challenging, and I knew her point. Her point was that we should see marriage as such a gift that we should stop making it seem so difficult. But I I wanted to say to her, you shouldn't be the one writing this. When you give a little caveat at the beginning that you've only been married 12 months and marriage isn't that hard, you don't know what you're talking about. So forgive me if you've only been married about 12 months and you think marriage is the most perfect thing in the whole world and you're not having any struggles yet. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is hard. Marriage is also wonderful. Marriage is also an opportunity for us as the people of God to display to a watching world, whether people around us follow Christ or not, whether they're Christians or not, gives us an opportunity to display important truths. And it gives us an important opportunity to experience and enjoy God in ways that others don't have the same chance. And so what we're going to do today is explore Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and talk about our new life and the implications this has for our relationships. We will go to the next couple of verses next week and talk about the implications of our new life in Christ for the way that we raise our children. But for today, we're going to explore those first couple of verses and that section that Josh read for us earlier in the way that we understand our new life and the way we treat each other as husbands and wives. But before we do that, we're going to trace this theme a little bit, at least, through the Bible. You might call this a biblical theology. A biblical theology is taking a particular idea, a particular theme, and tracing it through the pages of Scripture and seeing its progressive development. And so we're going to do that a bit with this concept of marriage because I'm firmly convinced that if we don't understand the roots of marriage, how it started, where it went wrong, how Christ is redeeming marriage and where it's headed, that we won't ever quite get this right. Right thinking doesn't necessarily change our feelings, and it certainly doesn't automatically change our behaviors. But if we don't think rightly about particular subjects, not the least of which is marriage, we will never get it right. So we're going to trace this theme a bit through the pages of Scripture, places that we have been before as a church family, so we don't have to go through these passages exhaustively. We're going to look at them at least briefly to trace this idea of what God intended for marriage, why it became difficult, what Christ intends for us as new creatures. So let's turn first, before we turn to Colossians chapter 3, 
to Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We just finished this past spring our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis. And we took our time through the book. We would typically do about a chapter a week, but we slowed down in the first few chapters because they're so foundational. They're the opening bookend to the entire Bible. And we often return back to Genesis chapters 2 through 3 to ask ourselves a very simple question. Why are we like we are? Or where did we come from and how did things get this way? If you've been in church circles for most of your life, you're familiar with these passages. But I'm concerned that very often that with the familiar passages, we take them for granted. We don't think very carefully about them. If you've not been around Christianity a long time, these ideas might be a little bit new for you. So I invite all of you to think carefully as we read together. In Genesis chapters 1 through 2, God creates the world. He made it to be a sanctuary for His image bearers. God cares about lions and giraffes and aardvarks and elm trees and oceans and lakes and all those kinds of things. God cares about those and He sustains them and He made them with beauty and takes care of all of them. But the primary point of creation was to create a sanctuary in which His image bearers could enjoy Him and each other. It was to be a gift for them. He could have made it a sterile planet. He chose to make it a beautiful place. In verse 18, after having made the first man, he says, It is not good, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God made the first man, and then he made the first woman. And then he officiated their wedding and brought them together as a couple. In verse 23, Adam proclaims, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You might gather from Genesis chapter 2 verse 23 that God allowed an interval between the creation of the man and the creation of the woman because Adam says at last. He experienced at least in some way human loneliness. He had God, so he had everything technically that he needed. But there was something about him as a human that craved companionship. It would have not been a sinful craving. It would not have been a desperation, for Adam at this point was perfectly sinless. But yet there was something about him as an image bearer that was pre-programmed to want someone like him, to, to want companionship. And that fulfillment, at least in some way, in a sinless way, would come through the affection directed toward and given by another. She was not just like him, but she complimented him. In verse 24, Moses, who wrote these words, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Eventually, Adam and Eve would have children who would have children and so forth and so on. And the parent-child relationship is incredibly important. It's vital to the fabric of humanity. There's something distinctly special about the relationship between the man and the woman. God designed it that way. That was His intention. 
And Adam and Eve naturally understood that. And verse 25 suggests to us that at least at the beginning, for a while, everything was great. The man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. They had perfect intimacy, not just sexual, but in every way. Relationally, they were connected. Those of us who have been married for any length of time have had seasons, at least to some degree, like that, where we are doing well, and that's a wonderful place to be. Most people, at least in the West, after they get married, take something that we call a honeymoon. They take a period of time where it's just the two of them. They, they don't talk to mom and dad, and hopefully they get out of town a little bit, and they just spend time together. We also speak of that metaphorically. Often when a couple is married, we speak of the first several months or even years of their life as the honeymoon phase. But we say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, those of us who've been married a little while longer, because we know that not only the actual honeymoon, but the metaphorical honeymoon comes to an end, and reality sets in. Well, why is that? Because at the beginning, it wasn't like that. At the beginning, every day was honeymoon. But Adam and Eve did something. They, they disobeyed God. They, they sinned, or we call this the fall. And something happened to marriage. God had told Adam that he should not eat the fruit of one of the trees of the garden. The fruit in and of itself was not poisonous, as we've talked about before, but it was symbolic of independence, of pride, of self-rule, of a fundamental belief that God could not make them happy, that they had to pursue happiness on their own. And Satan, the enemy of God, came into the garden and tempted Adam and Eve with just that, that somehow they had to find fulfillment on their own, and they gave in. And they fell, and their eyes were opened, according to Moses in chapter 3, verse 7. And immediately they realized they were naked, and they tried to cover this up. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I think that literally happened, but I think it's metaphorical of something much deeper. The lack of shame that we see in chapter 2, verse 25, now becomes reality. They are ashamed. And immediately, they are not only separated from God, but there begins to be a severance in their relationship. The honeymoon was over. God comes to them with words of condemnation, judging them for what they had done. He had the right to do that because He made them. And after all, He was the one true God. But God is not just a God of righteousness and justice. God is a God of eternal grace. And God knew full well that these first image bearers, this man and this woman who had fallen from grace, would need just that. They would need His gracious love. God did not come on this scene merely speaking words of condemnation, but He was poised to speak words of grace. He had intended to do this all along. Grace would have been merely a theory to humans who never fell from it. But when humans did fall from it, when they fell from grace, when they fell from God's favor, having broken His law, deserving His judgment, 
He came to display to them just how desperately they needed grace and how their lives could change because of it. And so in verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He's going to judge Satan for what Satan has done. And then subtly at the end of verse 15, he says, He shall bruise your head, this offspring of the woman, and you shall bruise his seal. In other words, the offspring of the woman will be damaged. But through his damaging, God will conquer the serpent. We know, of course, this was accomplished in Christ. Christ would be crucified, but it would not be a final blow, for he would be resurrected. And through the death of Jesus and through his conquering resurrection, he would crush the serpent and bring renewal to humanity. In verse 16, he says to the woman, God does, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. There will be consequences for your sin, Eve. Your desire shall be for, or probably a better rendering of this would be, over your husband, but instead he shall rule over you. And he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you have abdicated your place of responsibility and authority, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That is to say, in this verse and down to verse 19, work will now be difficult. Work is not curse. Hard work, difficult work, toilsome work, frustrating work, that is a result of the fall. And then God, in verses 20 and 21, clothes them, not with temporary clothing that they had sewn for themselves, but He sacrificed an animal as a picture of what Christ would eventually do as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And He gave them permanent clothing, both actual and symbolic of what He would do for them by the blood of Jesus one day to cover their sins. And he sends them out of the garden so they will not languish forever eating from the tree of life and persisting in their fallen state and driving them also away as a punishment from the garden, the place of tranquility, peace, and rest. So this chapter is a chapter that is mixed with sorrow and promise, with pain and joy. We see at the beginning that humanity men and women were made to live in harmony and in joy because of the fall. This affected everything. It affected not only humanity's relationship with God vertically, but it affected humanity's relationship with one another horizontally. And so all of our relationships are on an axis. Our relationship with God directly affects the way that we relate toward one another. And turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter 19. We're skipping a lot of things, but we are tracing this theme of where marriage began and where it's headed. In Matthew, in the rest of the Gospels, we find Jesus often interacting with the religious leaders of the day. They had different names and different categories, but we often find Him interacting with this group called the Pharisees. They were the religious zealots, the legalists of their day seeking to find favor with God through their own behavior. The Pharisees in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 3, came to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They were taking these naughty portions of the law 
K-N-O-T-T-Y, these, these difficult portions of the law and trying to trip Jesus up to make him look like he didn't know what he was talking about and to drive the crowds away from him because they were jealous. But Jesus, who wrote the law, could not be tripped up. These things were not naughty for him because he understood them well. And he understood the hearts of the questioners here. And so he says in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus knew this because Jesus saw the first wedding. He was there. It was his idea. So they are no longer two but one flesh. And therefore the human relationship that we call marriage is the most intimate of relationships because these two people become one in God's eyes. And then Jesus comments, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they say to him, thinking they have him now backed into a corner, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Then the disciples, his own followers, say to him, because they understand exactly what Jesus is saying, that marriage is the most intimate of human relationships and basically nothing should tear it apart, if at all possible. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Apparently it had gotten to the point in Israel by this time that the religious leaders had given provision for people to divorce each other for all kinds of reasons. Jesus was upping the ante again. He was going back to the first chapters of the revealed Word of God and saying, you are to love your spouse with all that you have, which means that you have to forgive all sorts of things, laying your life down for each other. The disciples understood just exactly what He was saying, and they say, well, wait a minute. You mean we're supposed to persist in such a kind of marriage? Laying our lives down and and giving up our rights all the time? That's kind of behind what they're saying. And Jesus, I think perhaps a bit more gently to them than to the Pharisees, says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. That is to say, not everyone will be married. It is not for everyone. And even those of us who pursue it, which is most of humanity, most of us who pursue marriage have to understand that it will be a life of sacrifice, that we come into this relationship, this one flesh union, laying our lives down for one another. I think those of us who grew up in Christian circles understand that to a degree. I remember when I began dating Whitney, we dated about three and a half years. I was 18, so I knew everything. I thought, that I understood what sacrifice would look like. And then I got married. And what marriage did and God's great design was reveal to me just how selfish I am. Reveal to me just how prideful I am and just how much I love myself. But through this thing that we call marriage, God has also taught me just how much He loves me which is what Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23 are about. So turn there, please, with me, and then we will get to our short text for today. 
We will explore this in more detail in months to come as we work through the book of Ephesians. But these are precious verses for us. If you were married as a Christian or in some sort of Christian ceremony, you probably had these verses read or referenced in your ceremony. I won't take time to read all of them, but just suggest a few thoughts. Paul begins Ephesians chapter 5 by reminding these believers that because of what Christ has done for them, because He has loved them, they are to love each other. In fact, he says in verse 1 of Ephesians 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Biblical love doesn't look like Hollywood. Biblical love is about sacrifice. Biblical love will cost you. And God knows that most of all because He gave up His most precious gift. He gave up His Son. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, understands what real love is. It was sacrifice. The beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church tells us that God intended this before the world ever began. He knew what it would cost him to bring the image bearers back to himself. It would would cost him his son. It would cost Jesus, the son of God, his life. And Paul says without reservation, there's no way to mince these words. If you're going to love, you have to imitate God's love. And it's a sacrificial love. And so then he says to the wives... In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, you are to submit to God as one of His image bearers, and you're submit to submit to your husband. But this is patterned after the church's response to Christ. In verse 23, Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And in verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But then more verses, more instruction is given to the husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then he goes on and on and talking about what that kind of love is to look like. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should also love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then Paul repeats the words of Jesus and the words of God from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul reflects on this in the next two verses by saying, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, let the wife see that she respects her husband. What Paul is saying here under the inspiration of the Spirit is that from the very beginning, God had design for marriage. The relationship between Adam and Eve, though they did not fully understand it, as revealed by Christ and now through the Spirit, through Paul, that marriage is more than just a relationship that we are to enjoy on a human plane. Because we live on an axis all the time, the horizontal and the vertical, the horizontal connects to the vertical. That is to say, as husbands and wives, we are to learn 
about Christ's love for his church. Therefore, our marriages are of utmost importance. Wives, when you submit to your husbands, you demonstrate what it's like for the redeemed people of God to respond to her Savior. Husbands, when you love your wives, you display to your children, to your neighbors, to all who see your behavior, what it looks like for Jesus to lay down his life for lost sinners. So yes, God has given us our relationship of marriage to deal with this thing we call loneliness, to give us relational satisfaction. I think that is tied up in the very nature of the Trinity. God is a unity, but He is three persons in one. Therefore, we can say that for all of eternity, God has had relationship. And He wanted humans to be the same way. But mostly, He wants us to understand His relationship to us. And because we fell from grace, the only way we could be brought back to Him is that one of the persons of the Godhead, one God and three persons, would die for us to bring us back to Him. So marriage is a massive deal. It is to give us joy. It is to bring us out of our loneliness. And it is to teach us even more fundamentally about our relationship to the Creator because Jesus has brought us back to Him. And so... That brings us to Colossians chapter 3. So we just did a brief biblical theology of marriage, where it began, where it went wrong, what Jesus thought of it, and according to the New Testament, how it can be made new and enjoyed once again. And so Paul says something similar in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, that he says to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 22 through through 33. And so he says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, verse 8, 19, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He is more brief here, and so we have time now to work through these verses. I think the thing that we can draw from verse 18 is very simply this. Wives, remember who you are in Christ and willingly submit to your husbands. Wives, Remember who you are in Christ and willingly submit to your husbands. Ladies, who are you in Christ? Let's look through the pages of Colossians briefly so we can get some context. Look at chapter 1 with me, if you do not mind. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Ladies, He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You are part now of the kingdom of God. You are a royal daughter, a princess, if you will, because of the death of Jesus. You have been reconciled, ladies, by the death of Jesus, according to Paul in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Jesus died for you, And He brought you back to the Father that you might be a daughter of the King. He did that for you, ladies. Ladies, you have the hope of glory. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. To them, to you, God made known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have the hope of eternal relationship with God because of Jesus. 
ladies, you are complete in the Son. In chapter 2, verse 9, for in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. You are relationally connected to Jesus, and that will never change. You have all you need, ladies. Your sins, my sisters, have been nailed to the cross of Jesus. Verse 13 of chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, but God made you alive together with him. And in verse 14, he's canceled the record of your debt. And he set it aside, and he nailed it to the cross of his son. Ladies, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In verse 3, you have died to sin, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In the following verses, we find in verse 10 that you are being renewed, ladies, day by day into the knowledge of the image of the Creator. My sisters, this is who you are if you have trusted Jesus. If you have turned from your own way, from your own pursuit of righteousness, and you have trusted in the righteousness of Jesus, if you have made his death your own by faith and have trusted in his resurrection, you have all of these things, my sisters. And therefore, because of all of these beautiful, inexplicable realities, Paul can say to you, submit to your husbands. But don't forget that last phrase of chapter 3, verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you can submit to your husbands. Because ultimately, when it really comes down to it, you are submitting to your Savior. Now, if we're being honest for just a minute, ladies, we know that your husband doesn't always act like Jesus. Right? Yes, you can nod your head. They know this. Your husband is not always kind. Your husband is not always sacrificial. Jesus was never salty, surly. Your husband can be. Jesus was never selfish. Your husband often is. Jesus never withdrew or treated his people harshly. Sometimes your husband does. But you are in Christ. You have all of these privileges and so many more that the Word of God reveals to you. And just like the church submits to Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, as we read just a bit ago, you are to submit to your husbands, imperfect though they may be. Because when you do this willingly, trusting your Savior who is making you new and giving you untold treasures and promising you eternal life, you ultimately are submitting to Him. You ultimately are trusting Him. But 
But the next point of the outline is incredibly important. Paul says in verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So Paul says to us, brothers, Husbands, let us remember what our Lord has accomplished and foster an atmosphere of gracious love for our wives. It's interesting here in this text, Josh read it to us just a bit ago, that there's three categories of relationships. There's marriage, child-rearing, and masters and slaves, which is difficult for us because in our at least current modern context in the West, we don't have that same exact relationship. We often try to relegate that to like a boss and an employee, but it doesn't quite fit because when you're finished with work at night, you go home, right? He doesn't own you. But there's three categories of relationship that Paul addressed in the Colossian church because they were present then. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters. In each of these cases, he begins with what we might call the weaker party. Wives, children, slaves. And then he addresses the stronger party. Husbands, fathers or parents, slave owners or masters. I think there's there's reason for that. There's purpose and design behind the sequence. My brothers today, those of you who have wives. Yes, Paul begins in verse 18 by telling them to submit to you. And you might like that if that's where it began and ended. But then he ends it, he capstones it, if you will, by saying to you, my brothers, that you are to create an atmosphere of mercy and kindness and tenderness and gentleness so that it becomes much easier for them to do what God has called them to do. We find the same sequence back in Ephesians chapter 5. There are a few verses given to the wives in exhortation to submission, but far more is said to the husbands in the way that they are to love their wives. Yes, wives, my sisters, you are to submit to Jesus by submitting to your husbands, but my brothers, you are the ones who create the atmosphere, the matrix of the soil, if you will, in which beautiful flowers can flourish. For my brothers, if we do not work hard in trusting the Spirit to create an atmosphere in which submission is not only possible, but enjoyed, then we have failed to fulfill our responsibilities. When it really comes down to it, my brothers, the responsibility lies much more with us, I believe, than it does with our wives to make sure that this relational cycle happens as it should. Is it conceivable that you could love your wife in a tender, faithful, gentle, understanding way and they could still fail to submit to you? Of course, that happens. But it tends to be the exception rather than the rule. And almost all of the marriage counseling that I have done and will do, I have found and will find that by and large, when there is a breakdown in the relational harmony of marriage, it is because the husband has failed to foster an atmosphere of grace in the home. Which then poses a question, wives, doesn't it? What if my husband doesn't do that? What if my husband fails to 
to nourish my heart, to foster a relationship with me where it makes it easier for me to respect Him. Well, when it really comes down to it, you are to submit to Christ first. And this does not mean, it never means that you submit yourself to abuse, verbal, emotional, certainly physical, or sexual. But it does mean that you may have to live with a difficult man, and I understand that, and that is hard. We are reminded because we've already explored in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that this is because of sin. Why do we have relational disharmony, my sisters? Because of sin. Because you're a sinner and because your husband is a sinner. But I tell you today that when it really comes down to it, when you submit to your imperfect husband and sometimes really imperfect husband, you are submitting to Christ. I also want to remind you because of what I've already said that if you are subjected in some way to abuse, we will help you with that. If you know someone who is subjected to such an atmosphere, we will help them because that is never appropriate and never okay and never to be endured. But husbands, let that never be said of us. Far from it. It should be said of us, my brothers, that we work hard because of the grace of Jesus, remembering what He has accomplished for us, that He laid down His life willingly for the church, reconciling to us, us to God by His death, that, that we do the same. I've done marriage counseling for a number of you, particularly premarital counseling, and one of the things that I often have asked you guys in those premarital counseling sessions, most especially, is when do you think you have laid down your life enough for your wife? And I always get sort of a quizzical look, but then they usually respond, I, I guess when I die. And I think that's the point, right? When had Jesus exhausted his love for the church? When he had proven, when had he proven that he had given them enough? When he breathed his last. So brothers, Marriage is to give you relational fulfillment and all kinds of other joys horizontally. But it's also to remind you what Jesus has done for you. My brothers, Jesus gave up his life for you and you are to give your life up for your wives. Is this a high calling? Wives, is it a high calling to respect your husbands? Parenthetically, probably for just a moment, I should explain what that means. We've done that in the past, but I think we should again. Sometimes the question is posed, well, what does it mean to submit to my husband? Does it mean that I do whatever he says? Does it mean that he trumps my decisions? Does it mean that whenever we have a discussion that whatever he wants is the way it's going to be? If that's how your conversations are going, you need to schedule an appointment with me. That is not how this should work. There have been very few times in my marriage when I have had to trump my wife to make a final decision. Now, there are times when we can't come to a conclusion where we have to figure out a way forward. There are times where we submit to one another in a sense. Very often in our marriage, I submit to the COO of our home. I guess in a way I'm sort of the CEO. The buck stops with me. 
when it really comes down to it. But in reality, Whitney makes most of the decisions in our house because she's the one at home most of the time. She's the one raising the kids most of the day. She's the one going to the grocery store and working through the bills and doing a lot of the stuff. She's the COO. She's making a lot of decisions that I don't have time to make because I'm doing other stuff. Now, I have to know what's going on. I I need to have my, my hands around it. If we make terrible financial decisions, that's on me. If our children are a disaster, that's my fault. If our marriage is terrible, I bear the blame for that more than her. But in many ways, I give things over to her because she's very capable. She's better at a lot of those operational things than me. So rarely do I say to her, we're not going to do things your way. We're going to do things my way. In fact, it's often the opposite. Often I say to her, we'll do what you think is best. Because we've been married a long time, I trust her. I think submission to your husband's ladies is not just allowing him to make the decisions. If he has created that kind of atmosphere in the home where he's making all the decisions, he's probably more of a tyrant than he is a husband. Submission has more to do, I think, with posture. Paul suggests this, I believe, at the end of Ephesians 5 when he says that wives are not just to submit to their husbands, but to respect them in all things. I think that's the idea. It's a posture of respect. If you're savvy, you may be saying in your head right now, hopefully not out loud in your husband's ear, well, you're not always respectable. That's true. Often he's not. But you know one of the things that God uses to take a unrespectable husband and turn him into one that is easier to respect is when you wives submit even when it's not easy. When you do that, and husbands, you know when they're doing that, God uses that to soften your heart, that your wife who is being changed by the Spirit of God is willing to submit to you even whenever it's not easy. God uses that to soften your hearts. So, In just a moment, as I close this parenthesis for our wives, our ladies, I will say to you that sometimes your husband will have to make a final decision as the CEO, if you will, of your home. But more often than not, your submission is going to look like a posture of respect. That has to do not only with your words, but your body language, the spirit with which you approach him. Any husband who is worth his salt, will trust you and respect you and honor you. But you make it difficult for your husbands, ladies, when you have a posture of disrespect, of harshness, of cynicism. All of you have been guilty of this at one time or another, right? If you need to do some confessing and repenting today to God or to your husband, I invite you to do that. And you can do that because your righteousness, your standing, does not consist in your behavior. It consists because of what Jesus has done. So therefore, you can confess your sins and you can trust Jesus to make it right. Parenthesis closed. But husbands, I've already said to you, and I will now repeat, You will have a tendency because of your strength, because you are the stronger party, at least physically and often perhaps in other ways, 
you will have a tendency, I will have a tendency, we have a tendency to often be harsh with our wives, to create an atmosphere in which it is difficult for them to submit to us. And brothers, perhaps today is a day of confession and repentance for us. There's all kinds of reasons for our harshness. I think selfishness lies at the heart of it. Selfishness is exacerbated or tweaked when we're stressed, when responsibilities are heavy upon us. You guys know what it's like. Work, marriage, children, the yard, responsibilities with your church and your neighbors. There's a lot on you. God has given you broad shoulders to to bear up under the many responsibilities, but but yet they weigh on you. It's incredibly easy when you come in the house from a long day at work at night, and the children are on you immediately, and maybe your wife is on you with her words. It's incredibly easy in those moments to, to turn inward and to demand your rights. And typically, you won't say that, like you won't get down on the floor and beat your fists and your feet on the floor and writhe in anger and some sort of adult fit if you don't get your way. But, but often, guys, adult men, we throw fits, right? The responsibilities that God has laid upon us are heavy and many, just like He did to the Son. Jesus bore sins of the world on the cross, the heaviest load that anyone could even possibly bear. We bear a far lighter load, and we have been yoked together with Christ who will help us with our many responsibilities. Wives can often be irrational. Our wives are typically more emotional beings than us, and sometimes it's easy in their irrationality to be harsh with them. Our wives can sometimes do things that annoy us and irritate us men, if we're being honest. But isn't that the way the church is often toward Jesus? And is Jesus our Savior not always patient with the church despite her sin? This means that even when your wife is irrational, even when your wife is selfish, even when your wife doesn't understand the many loads that Form the burden on your shoulders that you still can be kind and gentle with them. I will say to you that you cannot do this on your own. I will say to you that you must beg the Spirit to grant you the kind of self-control, patience, and endurance to love them in such a fashion. More could be said, but I think the exhortations are clear. These things are not accomplished overnight which is why we come back to these truths again and again. Wives, my sisters, it is hard to submit to your husbands, particularly whenever they are not uh, submittable to, if you will. But I call you to trust your Savior, to remember who you are in Christ and all the privileges you have in Him. And as the church submits to Christ, please trust the Spirit to help you submit to your husbands, even when they're imperfect, especially when they're imperfect. But husbands, by the grace of Christ, who has made us new, who is making us new, may we create an atmosphere of grace in our homes, loving our wives and merciful, kind, gentle, 
thoughtful ways, that we might help them submit to us, that they might be nourished by our love, that they might know that they are cherished by their husbands, just like Jesus, who laid his life down for the church, loves them. This is not easy. It is countercultural. It is missional in a sense. For wives, when you submit to your husbands in such a fashion, husbands, when you love your wives in this way, you declare to the world that the gospel is real and precious and powerful. You declare this to the next generation. Husbands, every time you love your wife, whether it's easy or not, you declare to your wives and to your daughters and to your sons what life looks like, what the gospel is all about. So may our church be marked by wives who willingly submit and respect their husbands. May our church be marked, my brothers, by those of us who love our wives sacrificially and lay our lives down for them just like Jesus laid down his life for us. May God grant us grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you laid down your life for us to make us new, to bring us back to yourself. I pray on behalf of the wives of this church that they would submit to their husbands as the church is called to submit to you, our perfect, merciful, patient Savior. Help them to do this. Help them to remember and to trust you. And Lord Jesus, help us as husbands to love our wives in such a fashion, in a merciful, tender way, that we encourage and foster this kind of respect. May we enjoy our marriages and may we display through them to a watching world and to our children, to each other, what the gospel is all about, that God brings sinners back to himself through sacrificial love. So may we remember the gospel. May we trust your spirit to enjoy it and to live it out in this practical way. Help us, we pray. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our faithful Savior. Amen.